0: Chapter 8 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So we are studying a document that was put together by our Baptist forefathers. It was published in 1677. Because of when it was adopted, it carries the name in history, the 1689. Um, And it is basically a summary of Christian doctrine that has stood the test of time these last 300 and some odd years. And so um, the Apostle Paul encourages the church to follow the pattern of sound words that's been handed down to us. And we'll see tonight, at least in the beginning especially, but all throughout this section, that that's what these men were trying to do. They were trying to hold fast to that pattern of sound words that had been handed down from uh, those that had come before them. And so I want to do something of a review just briefly on what we looked at last week. Um, Last week, we talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the outline there. We looked at the ordination or in, uh, excuse me, the ordination of the mediator. That's in chapter eight, paragraph one. And we looked at the identity of the mediator. Um, And I think that's as far as we got last week. And so we said last week that Jesus is fully God. Yes? And, and I quoted James Ranahan to say that all that we can say about God, we must say about Jesus Christ. He's not less than, he's not kind of God, he's not oh so close, but just a notch down below the Father. I mean, here's humans, here's Jesus, and here's the Father. No, he shares the same divine essence, the undefined essence, of the Godhead with the Son. But we also said that he's partially man. He's a little bit man, right? No, boys and girls, right? We said that he's fully God, but also fully man, right? And again, Dr. Renahan, quoting him, said, all that we can say about man, we must say about Jesus Christ with that caveat that we read in the confession, yet without sin. And we talked about the fact that um, sin is not of the essence of what it means to be man. Uh, Sin is something that came after God's creation. God created man out of the dust, and he said that it was was good. What God created was good. Satan came into the garden, sin entered the world, and now, yes, all men have a fallen sin nature from Adam. All men have Adam's condemnation and also his proclivity towards sin, but that is not of the essence of what it means to be a human being. And so Jesus is fully divine, and he's also fully man. We, we threw out that fancy word, homoousios, and we said that Jesus is of the same stuff or of the same substance with the Father. He shares the same undivided essence with the Father and with the Spirit and yet, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, at the right time in history, uh, assumed to himself a human nature. So he is now one person. I've got to get these numbers right. He is now one person with two natures, right? And we said very, very simply that a, uh, a, the, a person is a who and a nature is a what. And so if someone for some reason asked the question, what are you? You might say, well, I'm a human being. That's what you are. You are a, a human being. You are body and soul made in the image of God. But that's not who you are, right? You are you. You are your personality, your name, your identity. And so we said that Jesus is one who, one person, one Christ, and yet he is two what's, two substances, if you will, fully God and fully man, two natures. Um, I didn't use this word. I don't think I brought out this word last week, but this is what we call the hypostatic union. Yes, the hypostatic union. So I want to read something to you. Um, It's a, it's a, a statement from church history, and it's technically not a creed. It's called the Chalcedonian Definition. And we want to trace our roots all the way back through all of the church, all of the faithful that have passed down truth to us, all the way back to the apostles, back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, We don't stand isolated today in our day and say, we have it all figured out, all this doctrine. We just figured it all out on ourselves. No, we have been handed down truth. And so we uh, we want to embrace that which has come before us. So in 431, there was a meeting in the church, or excuse me, I think it was, Um, Where am I here? No, I'm sorry. There was a council. I thought this was kind of amusing. Maybe I'm just weird. There was a council in 431 that forbade any new creed. They said, we've had enough. No more creeds. But these in Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, wanted to make a statement about Christ and his person. So what they did is instead of issuing a creed, they affirmed the previous two creeds that had come before them, Nicaea and Athanasian Creed, and they gave a definition, a statement, and then they said again, and now no more creeds for real this time, no matter what. No more creeds. But I want to read to you. This is what the church has historically confessed about the two natures of our Lord. It's called the Chalcedonian definition. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not very long. Following the saintly fathers, this is written in 451, Following the saintly fathers, we, we, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards to his divinity and, excuse me and the same consubstantial with us as regards to his humanity like us in all respects except for sin begotten before the ages from the father as regards his divinity and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from mary the virgin now some protestants don't like this name the godbearer um If we understand that rightly, it's okay to say Mary is the God-bearer. She birthed the Redeemer, right? She birthed the Mediator um, as regards His humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo, remember last week, we said no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person in a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided in two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us and as the Creed of the Fathers handed it down to us. So if somebody says, what do you believe about Jesus? You can tell them, I confess Chalcedonian Christology. And then when they ask you what that is, you just recite that Creed to them. (laughs) That is what the church has said, thought about the two natures of Christ, how do we wrestle with this? And, and we said, these things are mysterious, amen? These things are challenging. There's two main things that have stumped the church, where the church has spilt maybe the most ink, trying to articulate well what it is that we believe, where the most heresies have crept in, and that is in the doctrine of our three-person God, the fact that God is triune, and in our two-natured Redeemer. Those are where the most challenges have come in, to the, um, the doctrine of the church. Tonight we'll begin, you have an outline there in front of you, at number three on the qualification of the mediator. So paragraph three is where we are, and I want to pray, Amy just sent a prayer request as well about Ron, and so why don't we pray and ask God to bless this time. Um, our Father, we do, again, come in prayer, Lord, because we're a needy people, we're uh, we're a people that are lacking, Lord, in so many ways. We're lacking in our capacity to understand who you are and, and all that it is that you've done and in your, 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 your uh, infinite being. Um, we lack the ability even at times to focus and to press in and to read and to hear and to pray and, and all these things you call us to do. And so we ask that the power and presence of your spirit would come here, overwhelm us, overcome us, overcome our distractions, our tiredness, whatever it may be. Um, that you might speak through me to us, Lord, that truth might be received tonight. If there's error, Lord, let it fall on deaf ears. Um, Lord, we lift up Ron to you in this situation, and God, we pray that you would get him the care that he needs, uh, that you would have your hand of help and blessing and healing upon him. Be with the doctors that they might see his needs. We pray that there's not further uh, complications than, all, than what's been known to this point. Um, help Amy to have wisdom as she seeks to serve and love her husband and um, handle so many things in the home. We just lift all this up to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Chapter 8, paragraph 3. I'm just going to read that. This is the qualification of the mediator. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, uh thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. I'm reading the old version. Some of you may have the modern version. Having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell. To the end, that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. These paragraphs in this chapter are meaty. You know, there's just a lot here. Um, I was working on this paragraph, and I looked down at the page number, and I said, oh, I'm halfway through the normal page count that I have for Wednesday night. So um, this is going to be a three-part chapter. Uh, That's my guess. Um, Because I want to consider these things. We'll see how far we get. Um, But we see here our Lord's suitability, suitability for the work of mediator, qualification. And we see that he is equipped by God for the work of mediator redemption Jesus the god man uh, the incarnate son who took upon himself flesh and i just want to walk through i think i have those five things there it said about him broken down and we'll just walk through there feel free to put a hand up and jump in if you want if you have something to interject or add or a question or clarification i'll move somewhat quickly just because of the time it said first that he was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. What does it mean to be sanctified? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Is anyone feeling brave here? Set apart. Very good. Yes. Set apart for a special purpose, right? For a new, unique, significant, different, other, holy purpose. We we sometimes think of some point I'm going to get there. We sometimes think of sanctified, and we should, as our progressive sanctification, right, where we are more and more made into the image of Jesus. That is true. That is progressive sanctification. But man in Christ has been positionally sanctified as well. We have been taken and set apart. And Jesus, it said, was sanctified. More, you might say, in a greater sense than, of course, we are, and anointed with the Holy Spirit, Above measure, beyond measure there. Um, so he's been set apart for this office. He's, he's been chosen for this work, ordained for this work. I believe that chapter one, paragraph one, excuse me, last week started with, it pleased the Lord to ordain the Lord Jesus Christ to be the mediator uh, of man's salvation. And so he's been set apart for this work. He's been given the spirit above measure. You know, it's interesting and maybe this is just me, I think this is a challenge for us in our doctrine of Jesus doctrine of Christ is that when we see Jesus doing miracles, we just say, "Well, yeah he 's God, I mean, of course he can heal the sick, but the bible doesn't doesn 't look at him like that in his human nature. It talks about him being dependent upon the spirit, right being empowered by the spirit i want I want to illustrate that to you um Isaiah chapter 11 Isaiah chapter 11 is a is a, a known prophecy or maybe a commonly known prophecy I should say about our Lord and it says there in Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 1 that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now who's Jesse? Somebody remember Obed Jesse David, yes, David's father is Jesse. And so a, 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 a shoot is going to shoot out from this stump of Jesse that is from David's father's line, from his family, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Who is the branch? Jesus, yes, not Solomon, right, but Jesus. And this is what it says in verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh, shall rest upon him. Notice what else. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I think those play into the coming points. We'll look at him having all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But I want to focus just on that statement that it says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. When the mediator comes, when the Messiah comes, the Spirit will rest upon him. And then Matthew chapter 3, I'll move somewhat quickly. Matthew chapter 3 is Jesus' baptism, right? A very significant sort of turning point in his ministry. And we read there in Matthew 3 verse 16, that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And so Isaiah said that when this branch of Jesse comes, when the shoot of the stump of David's line is going to come, the Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. And then for all the sea, the Father sends... As the Spirit proceeds from the Father, the Father sends the Spirit upon the Son at His baptism, and the Spirit rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Father speaks, right, from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There's a lot going on there, right? This is a significant event that's happening there in Jesus' ministry. Now, was this sort of just for show? Did he already have the Spirit above measure? I mean, he's Jesus Christ, right? I I think this matters. I think this means something. This is his commissioning, his filling, his equipping for his ministry. Because if you were to continue to read in Luke's Gospel, I I think Luke has the fullest account of what comes next. We read in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4 that after he was baptized, we read that Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the jordan and what happens immediately after his baptism he was led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil so as soon as he's baptized he's been the spirit of god has come to rest upon him he's now filled with the spirit and the spirit says let's go right and he's brought into this time of testing 40 days in The wilderness. I thought it was interesting just thinking about stuff we've been thinking about Sunday morning. um, That Adam was tempted by the serpent and he failed, right? Um, Adam questioned God's word, allowed the serpent to question God's word, to twist God's word. Um, But Jesus Christ is tempted by the serpent and he overcomes, standing upon God's word, right as his foundation for truth. Um, so he's full of the Holy Spirit. He goes into the wilderness. He's faithful, obedient, in our place. He does what Adam could not do, right? He overcomes the temptations of Satan. And then, Luke chapter 4, in verse 14, and Jesus returned after this time of testing in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And so he receives the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And now when he's sent out into Galilee, he's sent out, empowered by the Spirit of God. He comes in the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus has the Spirit, we read, but he has it above measure. He has it to the fullness, you might say. Secondly, the text says that he has in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is an interesting statement, right? We, we, I think this, is, this can be a challenge, and maybe I'm just projecting to you guys my difficulties in the text, but um, it can be a challenge to think about how does the human Jesus have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Because as a man, he's not omniscient, right? He doesn't know everything. He's not playing coy when he says, no one knows the hour or the day but my Father, Jesus, as a man in his earthly ministry, did not know the hour or the day. He was not omniscient. He was being empowered by the Spirit. But we read that the wisdom, goodness, knowledge of God is revealed in Christ and through Christ in his work of mediation. Remember that even before Jesus is filled with the Spirit, what is he doing at 12 years old? Remember, he's at the temple, and and who's he talking to there? Pharisees, the rabbis, the teachers, right? And are they saying, get out of here, you knucklehead youngster, you don't know what you're talking about? No, they're sort of like, whoa, who's this kid? And How does he speak like this, right? Even before this spirit-wrought empowering that comes upon him to begin his public earthly ministry, he's got something unique about him, Right? I've heard it said before, this is just one maybe piece of all of this, that Jesus does not suffer from the noetic effect of sin that we do. So that's the corruption of sin on the mind. Our mind is distorted. It's led in all different directions. We know we ought to worship God with our fullness, and yet we're thinking about lunch and the game that's going to come on in a couple hours and trivial things when we're in the presence of the triune God. Right? Our mind is broken and distorted. But Jesus can, with full, rapt attention, set his eyes upon his Father in worship, study the Word of God like we could never imagine to study the Word of God, unhindered by the flesh as ours is. Um, also, I think in... Why don't we turn to Colossians? I believe that's the proof text there. That's where this is at. Dustin, you have the book memorized, don't you, brother? <laughs> Uh, Colossians 2 is where they get this statement. And I think there's more going on there than just Jesus' wisdom. But I want to be clear to say that Jesus is the wisest man that ever walked the earth. Amen? Without a doubt. Without a shadow of a doubt. Um, he's the wisdom that is personified in Proverbs chapter 8. That He is the wisdom of God. Um, but it's also the fact that he is the, the mystery. He, he, that he's been revealed in this mysterion Uh, throughout the ages. So let me read Colossians 2 and 1. Colossians 2 and 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have seen me face to face... I'm sorry, have not seen me. Thank you. Um, Yes, have not seen me. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love... "...to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And so Paul talks about this mystery of the gospel that has been hidden for the ages. Augustine said that, that Christ, or the gospel, is concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. And you may remember that when we studied the mystery of Christ, Sam Renahan's work, that we said that, uh, or he said that mystery is, does not mean in the Bible something that's been in a dark closet never to be known at all. He said it's a mode of revelation. It's, it's how God has revealed His Son through types and shadows in a mysterious way, but nonetheless, He has been revealed since the promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. And, 15. and so here, these people, Paul is praying that they might have the knowledge of God, have full assurance and an understanding of the knowledge of God. And he says that in Christ, in the Messiah, is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that God has been doing and is doing has now been manifest and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we read in Number three there in your handout, it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell in Him. All the fullness should dwell. So God blesses the Son beyond measure. He's thoroughly furnished, as it says, for the task of our mediator and redeemer. He's thoroughly equipped. Number four, to the end, that being holy... Harmless and undefiled. Holy, harmless and undefiled. They're, I believe they're sort of echoing a, a verse from the book of Hebrews. I believe it's 7.26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, So Jesus is untainted, untarnished, and untouched by sin. Amen? Perfectly spotless. Not only did he not sin, but he could not sin. Now, some have grappled with this. I have a quote there from Kevin DeYoung. This is called the doctrine of Christ's impeccability. It says there, the doctrine of impeccability states that Christ was not only sinless, he was unable to sin. As the incarnate Son of God, Christ faced real temptations, but these temptations did not arise in Christ due to sinful desires. Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, but He was unable to be overcome by it. There's some grappling there for us, for sure, to say, well, because the first response you might have in your mind is, well, then the temptations don't seem to really mean anything if we're saying that He couldn't actually sin. Um, but as he wanted to say there, he faced real temptations. They did not arise out of the evil of our heart, where our temptations come from, right? He was tested externally. He dealt with all the things that we experienced, but he was, he was impeccable in his life. He never had a, a thought just for a minute of sinful anger. I mean, can you imagine that? He was never, as a child, annoyed at his brother. And just said something foolish to him. He never rolled his eyes at his mom. I see that way too often from one of my little ones lately. <laughs> uh, but it's an, we just do that, right? It's just like, oh, gosh, here we go again. Now you're telling me this. He never did that. He never dishonored his parents one single time. Never once. Um, and he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And truth. I, I, I like how the Bible puts these together because we, we want to see that these two are not at odds with each other, right? It is not, it's not grace or truth. I'm either going to be kind and loving and gracious or I'm going to be about the truth, but you can't have both. Is that what the Bible presents to us? Not at all, right? It is, it is unloving to not live according to the truth, it to not teach the truth, it did not hold others accountable to the truth. It is ungracious to leave someone in their folly and in their sin. So Jesus has these in his fullness, full of grace, full of truth, that he might be thoroughly furnished for the task of mediator. And not only is he given the power and the authority and the office, the calling to save, but he's also given power to bring judgment. And he's given a a command, the confession says, to execute that judgment. So Jesus is the Savior. Amen. Praise God for that. But he is also the judge. He will judge men and he will be good to judge men in their sin as they've been given opportunity to come to him in repentance. So we're moving on then to number four. Can I pause for just any interaction that you might have? Any thoughts or questions? Questions? Yeah, I, I, it's a difficult thing to wrestle with, I, I think. Because um, when I read the Colossians text, I, I think you can read the text that Paul is saying that in his, in his work, in his function, his office as mediator, in him is hidden all the... This is, this is the mystery of God. This is the wisdom of God fully now on display as he sent his son. This is the mystery that has been revealed throughout the ages. We read it, and we say, in his mind, he had all of the treasures of and i don't know that it necessitates that um, I, I want to include that to some regard, but we have to we have to hold on to his human nature that he's fully man right, and so he has the spirit above measure, something we can't fathom that we don't have he does not he's not corrupted by sin, something that we can't fathom because we don't experience it, um, but we must if we want to stay according to what the scripture teaches, we must hold to the fact that he was really a man, right? so there isn't this sort of like pipeline to the storehouses of heaven that if he can just channel that, then he's just divine revelation is just there for him as if he can sort of channel his divine nature and all of a sudden be God, but still be man. You understand kind of what I'm saying um but yes he he's he has the fullness of wisdom beyond what any man could ever imagine to 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 be. Certainly. With like a small yeah. So it's, sure, full it's interesting to think about Yeah, yeah. That's that's something to ponder. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm no. I'm. It's weird, right? Like when you just, just from a, just an observation, like what, we use ten percent of our brain. Like it's just strange, you know. But yes, what what was happening with Adam and Eve? What was happening with Christ before the fall? What was happening with Christ as a man? You know, it's a, it's incredible to even just ponder, um, and we'll be released from that right, one day, the curse will be reversed. Um, so we will be able to think without sin. We'll be able to worship God unhindered by sin. I can't imagine what that's what that's like, uh, but I long for that day. And so we see next in his work, unless there was another comment, the work of the mediator, and we will not get through all of these because we're covering here four through eight. Um, but we see his work accomplished in paragraph four. In his humiliation and in his exaltation, we see his work accepted in paragraph 5. We see his work anticipated in paragraph 6. We see his work attributed in paragraph 7, and we see his work applied in paragraph 8. And I have to give credit to Jeff Weisner for the fancy alliteration there. I don't know how much time he spent in his thesaurus finding A words. (laughs) Um, But we see his work accomplished in paragraph 4. So let's read that. Chapter 8 of the Confession, paragraph 4. The office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, um, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world it's a wonderful summary of the work that the Lord Jesus came to do and did do um, and there's a whole host of proof texts there that we could that we could look at but we see his work here accomplished and there's two common um, headings that that Christians have understood Jesus's earthly ministry and his work of, of redemption. And it's his humiliation and then his exaltation. His humiliation and his exaltation. Under this heading of humiliation, we think of something like his incarnation. Right? Um, When you think humiliation, you might immediately just go to his suffering and death, his shame on the cross, which was, of course, the height of his humiliation. But we put under the heading of his humiliation just the fact that he stooped down off of his throne out of glory and became a man, took on infirmity and weakness and, and 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 all the all the needs right need is a creature word amen it 's a word for men. Word is not need excuse me is not a word in god 's vocabulary it 's not a word that he uses in regards to himself, but Jesus assumed need to himself he 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 submitted to his mother as she raised him as a baby as we've discussed and, and, and learn to speak and learn to read and write. And, and, and so he stoops from glory down to this earth. Of course, we would include in his humiliation the fact that that he was born under the demands of his own law. He's born under the demands of his own law. It's his law. And he places himself under all of its demand, under the Mosaic law as well, not just the moral law. We would put under this rubric of humiliation, of course, his suffering, his, his bearing our punishment, his being made a curse, his crucifixion, and his death. I have the, I believe, the questions from the Baptist Catechism there, um, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, He comes. he's born in a manger. He's made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. Uh, He knew what it was to to grieve for the death of a friend, uh, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So those are some things that we would put under the the category of Jesus' humiliation. Um, And we also, as we think about what he did, there's two other categories um, as we this is you know the church is trying to take the revelation of the bible and trying to sort of make sense of it and categorize it and systematize and 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 interpret it the bible the bible is a, is is not a self interpreting book it's a text that comes to us that needs to be interpreted right and the only way you interpret something is by saying words that are not found in the Bible. You have to say words outside of the Scripture to make sense of what it says, right? Um, because our friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and our friends, the Mormons, all can just read Bible verses, and we can have fights, and just spar with shooting verses at each other, but those verses have to be interpreted. And so we see that Jesus uh, lived this life yeah, 33 years of perfect righteousness. We call this his active obedience. Galatians chapter 4 and and verse 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And of course, that passage in Matthew five seventeen, which is fitting here, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus actively obeyed every aspect of the, the Ten Commandments, but also the whole law of Moses, the whole ceremonial law, the whole judicial law, the whole civil law. He was taken to the temple by his parents on the eighth day, as was required of an Orthodox Jewish family and a newborn baby. He would have traveled to the to the feast when he was of age, as we see him at the temple with his family when he was of age going to. I believe it was a Passover. Um, He would have done all of these things, as he says to John the Baptist, remember, when he comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And what, is, what does John the Baptist say to him? Me? Baptize you? We got it backwards. And, he, and why does he say it? To fulfill all righteousness, right? To fulfill all righteousness. Meaning, God has sent this prophet. God is preaching repentance through this prophet. The sign of a man's repentance through this prophet is that they enter into the waters of baptism. And so Jesus, not needing to repent of sin, receives this sign to walk in obedience as God is calling men there through John the Baptist to walk in obedience and to submit to what God is doing as the forerunner has come preparing the way for the Messiah. Jesus obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. He obeyed His mother and father as a child every moment of His life. There was never a time when He had an ill motive. There's never a time when He had a crass thought. He never looked at a woman in a way that was impure. He was perfectly sinless every moment of His life. That's His active obedience. But He also obeyed in His suffering. And we call that His passive obedience. He was acted upon. Galatians 3 and 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And so when we think about his passive obedience, we think about his being made sin his suffering, his anguish, his death of the cross, his taking the wrath of God in our place, his taking the penalty of our sin, your sin record, what you committed in the past, what you committed this day, what you'll commit tomorrow, and unto glory, Jesus Christ took all of that sin upon himself at Golgotha, at Calvary's cross. This is his passive obedience in which he was acted upon suffering in the place of men. And and that's his humiliation. But we also think, glory to God, of his exaltation, right? of his exaltation as the redeemer, as the God-man. And it's helpful to think of him being exalted as the mediator, as this new two-natured person. Sometimes uh, we hear about Jesus being glorified by the Father or exalted by the Father in the cults. They want to jump on that, right? And they say, see, look, the Father has to give him glory. He doesn't have the glory. He has to be glorified. But no, we're talking about him as the mediator, as the God man, not as the second person of the Trinity, as he has always dwelt in unapproachable light and glory. But now as Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ did not exist before he was born of the Virgin. Amen. The second person of the Trinity existed. But Jesus, the man born in Nazareth, did not exist until he, the, the right time came. Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son to be born of a woman. There, two natures are united in one person. And it is that person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is exalted by the Father. As he says in Philippians 2, he will give him a name at the name of Jesus. He gives him a name that every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus always was Lord, right? He's always been God. He's always been worthy of worship. But now this one that's been given a name that's above all names, he is worthy of worship and he is exalted. Baptist Catechism says, where consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. So God vindicates his son, amen, when he raises him from the dead. I want to read from, I don't have it in my notes, but Romans chapter 1 has a wonderful statement about... Jesus being raised up, lifted up, that it being God's declaration of, of vindicating His Son, receiving His sacrifice, receiving what He has done in the place of sinners. Um, so Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, according to his human nature. He was, David was his great, great, great grandfather, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so God is making a statement. As he raises Jesus from the dead, all the powers that be on this earth and all the powers and principalities of hell coming up against his son. And then he dies. And it seems that the serpent has bruised the the seed of the woman and he has won the victory. And Jesus victoriously rises from the dead on the third day, confounding the hounds of hell. And he ascends and he sits and he rests at the right hand of his father. And there's four things we read here about his exaltation. Firstly, that he ascended into heaven. No one just waltzes into heaven. Amen. Uh, No one just goes and knocks at those heavenly gates and says, I'm here. Let me in. I've found the escalator up to glory and I'm ready to I'm ready to enter in. I want to read to you from Psalm twenty four. Glorious glorious text. Who, David says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So David's asking this question, who's going to ascend God's mountain? who's going to stand in the holy place of God? Who can do that? And he says, it's the one that has clean hands. It's the one who has clean hearts. It's the one who has not lifted up his soul to what is false. And now we hear this pronouncement. We hear this command in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And I love, I think it was Neil Stewart. The angels are sort of whimpering at the door. Who Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This is the glorified, risen, and now ascended mediator taking his seat, number two, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that... that that, that seat is a place of authority. It's a place of rest. It's a place of acceptance, right? If Jesus comes back into that heavenly courtroom having failed, the Father doesn't say, My son, come sit at my right hand. But he receives the work. He receives the offering that Jesus has made for sinners. And he sits down at the Father's right hand. And we read that he always lives there to make intercession. Right? We call this his current Session. He is interceding for the saints. Beloved, it's an incredible, incredible reality to to think about that the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator, the one who was crucified and died forever united, uh, one person in two natures, appeals to the Father on your behalf according to the merit of his work, his righteousness, comes to God and says, this is my son. For him I died; for him I shed my blood. He is clean in my sight. And this same mediator we read in his exaltation will return as the judge, fully being vindicated there by God as he stands against his enemies, vanquishes his enemies with the word of his power. What is it? What it? What is? What was it that Luther said as we sing, uh, "Mighty fortresses, our God, one." small word, one single word shall fell him. I mean, he doesn't even have to say it. He just thinks it. And his enemies are are laid on their backs as that scene when Jesus is being arrested and they ask him his name and he says, I am. And they, whoosh, blown on their backs simply by his words. And, and, And thankfully for them on that day, they were able to stand. But on the day of judgment, no man will stand against this king. James Renahan says here, the eternal Son of God, having assumed a true human nature, has worked, is working, and will bring his labor to consummation at the last day. Praise God for that. Uh, Any thoughts there? I have one more that I want to look at tonight. Number five. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and we see that, I mean, we see that wrath and grace uh, all over the Bible, right? Side by side, that He's coming, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him, and yet He's coming as a righteous judge, right? He's coming to lay His enemies low, and so he, 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 the call is repent, right? Repent of your sin and idolatry. Turn to Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Uh, Don't assume yourself to be good because of anything other than resting in the finished work of this Christ. If you're trusting in anything that you've done, in a decision that you made long ago, in your wonderful obedience in God's church today, it's all rags, friend, if it's not resting upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so number five, we see then his acceptance, I think is what we've entitled this one. Number five, his work accepted. Yes, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, excuse me, has fully satisfied the justice of God procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. And all God's people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. Um, So his work is accepted. His work is accepted. Now, and we want to be clear that all of this is the fruit of his perfect obedience and his sacrifice of himself, right? That's why... Justice has been satisfied. That's why men can be reconciled. That's why you have an inheritance in heaven. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and Jesus died a substitutionary sinner's death in your place. And so we firstly see that um, his work is accepted because he satisfied divine justice. He satisfied divine justice. You can say something. Oh, he was waiting for that word. The fact, the fact of the resurrection, the fact of the ascension, and the fact of the current session at the Father's right hand proves that Jesus's life and death were accepted by the Father as a satisfactory offering to atone for the sins of His people. A couple of texts: Hebrews ten fourteen. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So his offering of himself was sufficient. It was satisfactory to perfect all people that he would redeem for all time. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is the dilemma of the Bible, the puzzle or the riddle of the Bible. How can God be just, a righteous God, and justify ungodly men? Right? This, this is a contradiction. This is a logical fallacy. He's either righteous and would never justify a wretched sinner, or or he is either unrighteous as he's justifying these ungodly men Um, but he used a word there that p word propitiation and it means simply averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift that's sort of the basic substance of it but when we think about Jesus propitiating the wrath of God it is a turning away of the wrath of God Christ once-for-all sacrifice being the provision, being the offering that placates the wrath of God, the justice of God. All that to say, justice is satisfied when Jesus dies on the cross. Amen? God's justice is satisfied. His wrath is placated. His wrath is turned away. That means that for you, um, the only thing that keeps you from God's white-hot burning wrath is, is Jesus' work of redemption. Amen. And if you don't have that, if you're not covered by His blood, then His wrath burns for you. You are a child of wrath. But if you have been washed by the blood, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then His wrath has been turned away. There is no longer wrath to be poured out upon you because it was wrung out and exhausted upon Christ. Jesus drank the cups down to the very last dreg. Secondly, we see here that he has reconciled men to God, reconciled men to God. Paul writes the Colossians, Gentile believers, and he says this to them in 121, "You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him." So Paul says, "You are aliens." You were separated from God. You had no access. You didn't know God. You could not commune with God. You were hostile in your mind. You were doing evil deeds. And Jesus, in the body of his flesh, by his death, has reconciled you to God. He has has brought two parties together that were at odds and had enmity. He has restored that fellowship. Ephesians 2.12 as well. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, I think there may be some double reconciliation going on here. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one Jew and Gentile and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he has reconciled Jew to Gentile and he has reconciled both of those parties to God to himself, peace with man and peace with God. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5: all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgresses against him, and entrusting to us the message of re- reconciliation. And finally, and thirdly, as his work is accepted, we see. That men have been granted an inheritance. You and I have been given an inheritance, far better inheritance than if our grandfather was Scrooge McDuck or Bill Gates or whoever else has a pile of money. But we've been given an inheritance that is imperishable. Amen? It's undefiled, it's being kept in heaven. Listen to Psalm. Mm, I don't think that was Psalm 33, that was 37. Listen to the Psalter. <laughs> For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the earth and the la- inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Peace is coming to God's people. The wicked one day will be no more. And of course, we have to read here First Peter chapter one, as we think about our heavenly inheritance bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter one and three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who you are by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice. In this, you rejoice. And we do rejoice. Amen? We do rejoice. And so the Father has accepted the offering of His Son. He's accepted His Life in our place, because we are, are, are sinners, we need a, a righteousness, right? It's not, it's not enough that we be forgiven. We need to be positively righteous to be accepted by God. And we'll never, we'll never, it can never happen, right? And so Jesus' life, His act of obedience has been imputed to us. We receive His righteousness so that we are positively righteous in God's courtroom. But there was also a penalty that had to be paid for sin. And Jesus took the wrath of God, took that penalty in our place so that we on that day might be received and accepted in the sight of God. We might be allowed into His holy presence through the merits of Jesus Christ, our mediator, that we might stand there and worship God in all of His fullness. Amen.